Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking to Shireen Herndon-Brown and Timothy Fields, co-authors of The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions. Before we talk to them, we're going to talk about what we realized as we were preparing for the interview. I think let's just start with the fact that we use a lot of acronyms in this interview. So we'll start with the definitions of HBCU and PWI. So HBCU are historically black colleges and universities and PWI are predominantly white institutions. So keep that in mind as you listen to the interview, because we say that a lot. And in having the two of them on, aside from them being smart and giving us great information, is that they have a niche that they're speaking to, right? Like they wrote a book for Black families to help them with the college admissions process. And it got us thinking about how much we lump together the story of college. And we do it and everyone does it. We talk about high school kids who are on a path to college and what people should do, what families should do, what parents should do, as if we're kind of all equal in this process. And one of the things that I saw right away was their advice to Black parents about when to start talking about college was like, I can't remember, they they said at least middle school, right? But I think they actually suggested even earlier than middle school. And I don't hear that much in the world that I live in and the typical conversation we were having about colleges so Steph and I were talking about how um, how important it is to to let people have a voice, especially for different audiences, right? Like to have two black men come on and talk about their book is not just for parents of black students. It's for all of us to recognize that our bubbles are they're biasing how we perceive everyone's experience in a situation. So like. You know, I don't know, Steph, did you have that same reaction when you were listening to them? It reminded me of just <laughs> something we talk about all the time. I mean, I feel like, you know, our, our lives at your team media have turned into what <laughs> the same conversation, but you just keep coming at it like around the circle is that everybody's experience is different. And like giving, I would say giving honor to the fact that my experience is different than yours and is different than theirs. And this idea when they were talking about wearing um, college sweatshirts and, you know, growing up in that household where you're wearing your alma mater, I'm first generation. I was like, like, we didn't have that. So like, it reminded me just even like my story is different than everybody's story, right? I didn't know that was a thing till put the words there. Well, and that story made me think also that the starting earlier for first gen families look so different than the timeline I had with my kids, because in our house, we didn't know it, but we talked about college all the time. We went to reunions occasionally. We have friends from college, like just the social Mm -hmm. life of college. And, you know, it, it kind of wove into our lives in a way we were completely unaware. So that when I say I didn't talk about high school, I didn't talk about college till junior year of college, which I think I didn't do. I only didn't talk about where should you go? Like that mm-hmm. was the thing that was delayed. But but of course, we talked about college all the time, you know, and, and yeah. we talked about it even with the bias of like where you go matters. So that was woven into our kids story where like for first gen kids, it might not at all be part of anything they thought about that it matters to go to this school. And and I think, frankly, they might be better off in that particular space. <laughs> but right. um, we we are talking about it in my house in a way that's organic. 
And if you don't have that, if you grew up in a house where you're the first to go to college, mm-hmm. you might not have thought about it until you were much older. Yeah. It is so interesting. But I, I do love this idea of just giving honor or homage, maybe is the word, to everyone's stories and not those stories being the same. I think that that, especially in the framework of college and what we're talking about, it's so important, right? And we see that we see that in our own families, how it's different amongst kids raised in the same household, let alone going household to household and figuring out how to have that conversation and how to best do that journey with your family. Because I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like we've done this for so many years and I, I remember talking to friends and I remember saying like the thing I learned was just trying to focus on the kid in front of you, like how important that was. And it's not so obvious, as dumb as that sounds. That wasn't so obvious to me. And then it became very obvious. So I I love this conversation. I also think that the idea of speaking to people with with different lived experiences Mm -hmm. is stretching it outside of what's going on in my house because I can only, I really can only know what I'm living with. I mean, I I can't know that your house is going through something that my house, house isn't going through if you don't want me in that story. And you don't have to put me in that story. But the best way for us to do it, and I mean, honestly, like the total joy of what we do is that we get to, we get to have two people on who've had a different lived experience. And every time we talk to anybody, it's so clear that that's, that's what we're doing. So now we have a different impression of the world because of that conversation. And hopefully people who are listening to the episode will also walk away and say, I had never thought about that. So it's, it's human nature and they are our default to find the people who we're most comfortable with. But when we push those boundaries and we are exposed to other perspectives of the world, I think it just makes us kinder. I feel gentler yeah. about the process, having heard what the two of them spoke about. And by the way, understanding the pressure often in their community is HBCU versus PWI, historically black colleges and universities versus predominantly white institutions. That is a real struggle in their communities. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. So that was so great. And the other thing I was going to say is that stories are so different from each other. And I love that. So there were there are moments, and our listeners are, will hear this, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I identify with that. And then I'm like, oh, no, but I identify with him on this point. So that, And I think that's how they found each other. They were aware of each other. And then they realized that they each have such different stories. And so their union <laughs> in this book works so beautifully because their stories are so different. So that conversation is just awesome. Up next is our conversation with them. We can't wait for you to join us. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. 
You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Shereem Herndon Brown and Timothy Fields are veteran admissions experts and co-authors of the Black Family's Guide to College Admissions. Pulling from decades of experience, they discuss specific concerns for Black families that are not often addressed by school counselors or other resources. I'm curious what made this book necessary. What inequities did you see that prompted you to go forward and write this book, which, by the way, I found really, really interesting. I enjoyed it. I learned so much. And then when you're done with that question, can you explain what is undermatching? Thank you again for having us. So the book was necessary because in the summer of 2020, I was very carefully watching what I call the Black at IG movement. Um, There were several students, well, several students, thousands of students across the country using Instagram to talk about the micro and macro aggressions that were happening, happening to them, predominantly at independent schools. I was particularly sensitive to this as an independent school alum, an independent school parent, former independent school faculty and administrator. And I saw a common thread as I was reading these about college counseling. So many of these students had concerns about the college counseling they had received while they were in school or were at school. And that theme really prompted me to say, okay, this is wrong because again, here we are, you know, I graduated high school 30 years ago, but I saw a lot of similar threads that happened to me coupled with, you know, when I was a teacher. So I immediately called Tim and I said, look, Tim, we are uniquely positioned to talk about the college admissions process as two black male educators. We're parents. We've been in this profession in different spaces for a long time. We should write a book directed towards Black families about the college admissions process, but not from a necessarily a first-generation standpoint. I mean, Tim is a fourth-generation college student. His mother is the former dean of admission at University of Massachusetts, and he's the senior associate dean at Emory, but he went to Morehouse. So I knew all these things about him that I wanted his voice in a book that I probably would not have completed without his, you know, kind of keeping me accountable. Undermatching is something that I... I termed or at least had heard about for many years. And this is when school counselors in particular, and this this is black or any color that a student may be, suggest schools that are quote unquote beneath them. If parents really rely upon U.S. News and World Report rankings per se, I felt as per these uh, Instagram messages that a lot of kids felt that they were being undermatched, where they were saying, mom, dad, I want to go to Middlebury or Tufts. And school counselors were saying, you need to apply to Dickinson and Gettysburg. Undermatching sounds like when kids or parents have certain aspirations and they get very, very quickly knocked down and undermatched. And I think that works against Black families who oftentimes are making cultural and financial sacrifice to go to independent schools that predominantly white college counselors may not understand what's important to the family to the kid. So we just wanted to offer something that would facilitate that conversation so this undermatching would happen less often, ideally. But the, the, the real reason was necessary. There's also a resurgence about HBCUs happening in our culture. You can give that to Beyonce and her her homecoming performance on Netflix at Coachella, which was great. But you could also do that to the rise of Deion Sanders when he was at Jackson State. There were so many different opportunities for us to see that HBCUs are becoming popular and popular culture, whereas amongst Black people, they've always been popular. So some of the challenges are, you know, first of all, as 
you know, and we particularly wrote this book for, you know, second, third generation Black parents who's, uh, you know, have been to college, maybe have done, you know, more for themselves, have the option available to them. Do I want to send my kids to independent school? Do I want to possibly move out to the suburbs? Do I want to put my kids in a quote unquote good school? And often what that comes with is them being you know, a minority and a majority population, the meaning that they were probably one of the few blacks that are in their classrooms. And, you know, what are the cultural trade-offs that families are making as far as putting their children in these spaces? And then, you know, as you go throughout that process, throughout high school, you know, what does that look like as far as their education, as far as what is their socialization and all those other factors? And it's, it's a big challenge that, you know, we found in the, the multiple interviews that I have, the families are really having these conversations conversations very early on. And they're very hard conversations because these trade-offs happen. And not to say that they don't happen with other cultural groups, but they, you know, specifically happen, especially for Black students, especially those who go to independent and large suburban public schools. So your target audience, Black families, right, for this book? Because I read the book and I really got a lot out of it. Were you hoping it would also reach the me's of the world? Absolutely. And, and the me's of the world, meaning allies, educators, you know, people who care about children, regardless of color. Absolutely. I mean, the book is written in the three parts. And Tim just, just discussed the context. We wanted to discuss the challenges that many Black families have in the college admissions process when just considering what's best for them and how they're educating their child over 12 years before college. Um, and then we talked about some of the X factors, which are, uh, you know, how Blacks are oftentimes viewed in the college admissions space pending the Supreme Court decision coming out later this year. But yes, we 100% are appreciative and knew that white college counselors, white educators, white people who care, um, need a resource to address with black families that they're either working with that they know. And and we hope that it and we've overall has been received in that in that space of we just wrote something as another resource. There's so many great college admissions books in the overall canon. To our knowledge, there hasn't been one written by two black people in the college admissions space professionally, parents who are on two sides of the coin, or Tim's in admissions. I work with students on the application side. I went to independent schools. He went to public schools. I'm an independent school parent. He's a public school parent. We have all these differences. Hence, we're not a monolith. We're not just saying, hey, Black people, this is all for you. No. We wanted to share it in a space where it would reach many people as possible, including people like yourself, who, again, find it useful. I think it's it's been as we were writing this book, um, it was very you know encouraging that as you know, counselors were coming to visit Emory. Uh, they would also say, oh, yeah, while I'm here in Atlanta, I want to go visit Morehouse. I want to go visit Spelman. And so, you know, we also, you know, have seen, you know, college counselors saying, you know, yes, obviously I want to come to the Emory's of the world, but also want to look at other schools. And so we encourage in the book that, you know, yes, if you're going to, you know, Nashville, you need to go to Tennessee State. You should probably go see Meharry, go to Fisk. If you go to New Orleans, you shouldn't just go to Tulane. You should, you know, go look at Dillard. You go should go look at Xavier, same for Washington, D.C., Baltimore, other places to Yes, obviously, there are these U.S. and News World Report top 25 schools that you can go see. But also, while you're in the area, there are also, you know, within a stone's throw, historically black college universities that you can see as well. And that's not only for families, that's also for counselors as well to kind of expand. So as they're having these conversations, they can, you know, better, you know, have these uh, important conversations with families as far as where the opportunities that are available at these schools. I love that conversation about just opening everyone's eyes to 
what's around, right? It's what we always tell our kids is like opening these doors before you close them. So it just, it, it just makes the, it, it enriches the conversation so much. So let's talk about 2023 and what's different for parents and the college process and also specifically how it's different if you're black. Well, you know, again, do tell, right? You know, by, by the time this airs, hopefully decisions will be out and, and we'll, we'll have some more data to cement some of our assumptions. But I think 2023 is going to be interesting given just, again, the increased competition for some of the top spots of selective schools. And again, we want to reinforce that most of our people that we're speaking to are looking at, based upon U.S. News and World Report, the top schools in the country for whatever that means. And we even put in our book schools that we believe are best for Black students. And yes, a lot of it is anecdotal. In 2023, I think we need to be mindful of selectivity. Um, schools like Emory, schools like Davidson, schools like Washington University in St. Louis, they're going to have 10 below 10% admit rates. And we want to make sure people are aware of that so that Black families are going into the college process eyes wide open, that they have the information that they need to have conversations with their school counselors so that it's a shared responsibility, not a blame game on why my kid did get in or did not. And that happens regardless of race. So in 2023, we hope that platforms such as podcasts and, you know, social media help us to share our perspective on what all that means. Because once upon a time in 2020, or at least as per many of our friends and people that we interviewed, we interviewed over 300 parents and about, you know, over 100 uh, school counselors for our project. We want everyone to know that, hey, it's different out there. This is not the same kind of college admissions process you went through 20, 30 years ago. And if you go on to this thing, ha ha, I got a smart black kid, he's going to get into Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, you're wrong. So we really wanted that to be the the focus point. And going forward, as we continue to tour and share what we know through our book all around the country, that is the message that we're sending is that, hey, HBCUs are great. We hope that families are looking at both PWIs and HBCUs, but also that once upon a time is not uh, 2023 in terms of college selectivity. You know, I have five kids and for all of them, we didn't start talking about college till I think after they took that practice PSAT, it was like, okay, so now we have some idea of where you should be considering. But you are talking about in the book about starting much earlier. And is that particular to Black families? Or are you saying like everyone should be starting in middle school? Well, I can make the argument for college begins with, and you highlighted this in some of the questions that you sent us, with exposure. And not knowing where people get their information from. Tim's been adamant about understanding that so many Black families get information about the college process from their own. But again, is that information limited? I don't know what the context of the family dynamic is, but we all know that many of the affluent white families that I work with, primarily in New York City, they're getting exposed to college as early as second, third grade when they see their parents wearing Dartmouth sweatshirts or Lehigh sweatshirts. And then they're able to have those conversations about what colleges is and what they could possibly lead. Yes, a second or third generation Black family may wear a Morehouse sweatshirt, may wear a Michigan sweatshirt like Tim. So that allows him to be exposed to something that not everyone has the access to. I'm a first generation college student. My parents told me, go to college. They didn't have any idea where, where Wesleyan was in Connecticut, but I had friends who had I'd heard about it. I had friends who went to Oberlin and Penn and Haverford and Swarthmore. So I knew it was a good liberal arts school, which allowed me to be exposed in middle school to that. I think our thing about exposure really is about the sequencing of courses, right? We understand that to be a candidate at a selective college or university, you must take certain courses. They they're expect you to take a rigorous course load in order to really maximize your potential there. So because of that, we think that families should know that as early as seventh and eighth grade, whether it's foreign language, science, or math, 
that they need to be taking courses that will lead them to ultimately a calculus or an advanced physics or whatever that may be in order to be a competitive candidate. So yes, starting early starts with exposure. It's understanding what all this entails and understands admissions requirements and then executing the process where many of their competitors, regardless of race, will also be executing it. And and we want that to be at the forefront of people's minds. How do you address test optional in the book? So we went back and forth on this. Uh, you know, so one of the unique things about this is Shereem and I are, you know, totally different, you know, come at this perspective from different vantage points, him going to independent school, going to predominantly white institution, me going to public school all my life, going to HBCUs, and, and the, the differences go on and on. And so from his lens, he was looking from decide as, oh, this is test optional. That's what they're saying. You know, we're not going, you know, you know, we need to not talk a lot about testing. And I'm saying I'm reading these applications. I'm seeing because of my day-to-day life, how testing is still an important part of this situation. So we had tug and pull, you know, throughout this process. But where we landed was that, you know, obviously test optional is not new. It's been around for decades, but the pandemic, you know, threw um, test optional into a lot of schools. And so now it's something that's part of uh, the fabric of a lot of institutions. But where we landed was that families need to prepare for the test to take a practice SAT, ACT, to then sit for the test and see how well you do on it. And then you could decide whether or not you want to take the test. You want to submit your scores to the schools you're applying to. But there are still several scholarships that require testing. There are several states that require testing. And what we did not want to do is for students to potentially, you know, uh, have 25% of schools that they may be interested in our scholarships require testing and you not take the test. So we didn't want to instantly, you know, change uh, this mindset that, oh, test optional, we don't need to take the test at all because, you know, testing is still very much in the fabric of higher education. Uh, You know, um, I, you know, liken it to oil that, you know, testing is oil for admission. But yes, you have Teslas, you have hybrids, you have electric cars, but by far most of the cars on the road have some form of oil or gasoline. And so for the foreseeable future, testing is going to be a part of admission. And so we just want students to prepare to ultimately have options. We just want families to have options in this process. And if you don't do well, there are over 1,200 test optional schools that you can choose from. But if you do do well, uh, it's another data point that you can help you in this competitive application landscape. It's so hard for families to know what to do now. Because, you know, the data shows that so many accepted students are giving in their test scores. So, you know, it's like very mixed messaging right now on that subject. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's I, th- I think we, we, we're learning that what schools who, who uh, share common data set information about how many schools are accepting kids with tests or without tests. That's all information that goes into good college counseling. That's information that goes into good sharing of, of information. We have to be discerning. We have to expect, as Tim said, that this is an evolving landscape that I agree with Tim 100% that I'd rather students have testing and then we can decide if they're going to submit it or not. I personally don't think that test option is going to last forever. So again, it it is a, a, a hot topic. We understand that, but we really want parents to do what's best for their kid. And if that may mean not taking the test at all. There's plenty of schools that are test optional. If it means arming yourself with it, ideally so that you can apply for certain scholarships that require it, so be it. But we really want to be uh, transparent and upfront with parents that in a perfect world, your kid would take testing and then decide if they're going to submit it or not. 
you focus a lot on HBCUs and like the decision making that goes on in many homes about the pros and cons of going to a predominantly white school versus going to a historically black. So Shareem, you said that at HBCUs, black students are celebrated, not tolerated. I think I know what that means and it gutted me a little bit, but can you explain why you came to that that conclusion? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think it's important that it's a it's a popular slogan that I've adopted. I, I, I didn't come up with that. I'm not the that, that is not my IP. But what we have found, what I have found as, as an outsider to HBCU culture is that first and foremost, Tim loves his alma mater, Morehouse, and he loves Spelman. And then he loves all, all, all HBCUs. I have a, a friend who went to Alabama State who loves Prairie View and Grambling and Southern. And then, you know, his alma mater first, but then those other schools. I don't feel the same way about Middlebury, Tufts, Hamilton, and Bowdoin. You know, I, I don't ride for the NESCAC. Whereas I think a lot of Black college graduates who went to HBCUs love, most love their HBCU experience, and they would want that for their children. And, you know, it's, it's really a celebration of life where they, you know, from what I'm told, feel like people are there to lift them up and, and professors are there to help them to get through the process and really believe in them because many professors there are also HBCU graduates as well. So I think that when you're, you know, let's admit it, most selective universities that are predominantly white institutions were not built for black families. Once upon a time, they were exclusively white. Then integration, affirmative action, they start getting more integrated in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And not that it's saying it's, it's tolerated as a strong word, but it's not, the, it's, it's not a, the familial homecoming feeling that many black students have. It's an intentional decision to go to a predominantly white institution, knowing that you're going to be in the minority, but it could be, quote unquote, a better school. You may have gotten better financial aid. Your parents think that this is the, the best way to network going forward. So there's a lot of factors that I've never met someone who went to an HBCU that will say, I wish I would have gone to a PWI. There are plenty of graduates who's, you know, myself included, who've questioned, should I go into an HBCU? So that dynamic in itself makes that phrase relevant. So, um, and we touched on this a little bit earlier. It seems that the com- that this conversation starts much earlier for Black students and Black families, um, whether to send your kids to uh, private school, private high schools, or more affluent public public schools. Oh, there's a tremendous compromise. I mean, the compromise is that you know, as I've raise four children on my, you know, with my wife, we live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Why? Because safety or fresh produce, you know, the, the, the different people have different reasons. But yeah, we, let's not ignore the fact that there are real food deserts in predominantly Black and Latino areas that don't make what my wife and I would like to have for our children. So why, by being one of few Black families in our neighborhood, we stick out like a sore thumb to some extent. Thankfully, we have very kind people who live next to us who don't seem to, to care about race. And then when it comes to kids' education, whether that's, you know, my wife went to public schools all her life. The fact that our children's school costs $35,000 a a year, she's like, this is ridiculous. Like, how do people pay? You know, we have twin girls. How does someone pay 70 grand a year for education? So that concept is oftentimes foreign to a lot of first generation families or black families. So the compromises are really the cultural elements. Are we, you know, celebrating ourselves and our families in the same way some of their peers are? Obviously, the, the financial commitment, if of the black family does not come from wealth initially, is that something that that they need to consider, should we be saving versus spending? I mean, imagine if I was saving that 70 grand a year in order to, to, to do other things for generational wealth or have a bigger home. So there are sacrifices that I think, you know, socioeconomically, a lot of different people make. But from a racial standpoint, 
you know, my kids are in the fifth grade now and their friends are now, you know, gearing up to have bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in the next two years. And uh, I've talked to a lot of the parents about that and they're really excited. And I went to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs when, when I was their age and my son went to them as well. But then I got to ask myself, should I be throwing them a celebratory event also so that they don't feel like they're that so that they don't feel excluded? So we know that every weekend during the seventh grade year, they're going to be going somewhere. Should they too have something? I think that's the cultural sacrifice that we haven't decided yet, but it's definitely something that's on my mind. Yeah. And, and what I'll add is I'll just, you know, make it really plain that th- my wife and I went through this as we uh, thought about our education of our children. And so I have twins that are nine. As they were preparing to go to kindergarten, we wanted them to be in public school. And so we live in the Atlanta area. And we took six or seven months to narrow down various neighborhoods so they could go into public school. And this was six or seven months of research looking at, you know, what is quality education? How, what is the diversity of the school? You know, how far is it going to be from work? And we landed upon, you know, one neighborhood that we said, you know what, we really feel good about this. But the neighborhood was outside of our price range as far as the house we wanted. And so we had to settle on a smaller house so that we could be in a neighborhood where we wanted our children to go to public school. And this was as they were entering in kindergarten. This was something that we thought about, the, you know, consciously, because we both wanted them to be in public school. We were right up the street from a great independent school in the Atlanta area, but we wanted to be in public school. And so this happened when they were five years old. And this happens a lot where families have to be very intentional about what, what area are we going to put our children in. And even then, the public school is still predominantly white, um, but it does have more diversity than other schools schools. And we have to say, how are we supplementing their education? You know, how are we putting around them other people that look like them? You know, what do their social groups uh, look like? And so these are, you know, all things that, you know, we have to factor in and it's something that, you know, happened very early on. Okay. So we started out this conversation talking about undermatching. Um, And I've heard stories about even earlier than the college process officially starts, counselors suggesting to parents that their kids should consider something like community college, which I never heard. And and it was people in the black community of the school my kids went to who were saying that that was being offered out as a possibility. Um, and so what I was wondering is, I had I have two questions. One is, is that commonplace? The idea that putting a kid down a track that is based on not reality, but perception of where that kid should go, is that a common thing? I don't know if it's unique to black families. I think, again, in our in our travels of interviewing so many different families, we learn different people have different priorities. And not everyone wants their kid to go to an Ivy League school and become a lawyer, doctor, you know, or, or, or professor, right? The suggestion was coming from the school, not the family. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Tim, you can chime in, but I, I think it's really dependent upon the family. Community colleges is not something that we have that much experience with or too many families wanting that for their for themselves or from the school making that suggestion. But we do think that from a financial standpoint, does it make sense if, if finance is going to be a concern? Yes. And so if a school knows that finance is going to be a concern for a family, I think that's pretty responsible for them to share to share the alternatives that could, you know, kind of lessen the burden. So I, I don't blame any school for wanting to do what's best by the family based on cost, um, because I think that's a big factor in, in the college admissions process. You know, you know, what I'll say is that there are schools, uh, you know, particularly independent schools and that pride themselves on their college going rate. And, you know, some of it is hedging um, based upon we want to say 100 percent of our students were accepted into a college. 
they don't say what type of college. And so they are trying to hedge against because they you know, want to continue to think about that next generation of families. Oh, look, all our kids are going off to college. So some of that is hedging. But, you know, I, I think, you know, some of it is just perception like, you know, oh, this is, you know, what I think is best for the student without really knowing the family, without knowing their desires, and also really knowing really the total landscape. Like there are 2,000 colleges that offer bachelor's degrees, and most of those have acceptance rates over 60%. And so what we find is a lot of college counseling offices have about 30 to 40 go-to schools, if that. And, you know, it's really not expansive of the entire uh, landscape of higher education. And so, I, you know, part of this book, what we wanted really to do is to put some names to college or universities that maybe you didn't think about that you could uh, offer to kids and not just keep going to this same well of schools that you know best that may not be the best fit for that family or student. What's the best advice for parents of college-bound kids, and is it universal? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's not universal. I think everybody's socioeconomic con- uh, situation is different. You know, it's a very personal process. What's important to the kid? What are the career aspirations or major aspirations? The cost, obviously. I think the best advice is to understand who your kid is to get some kind of assessment, personality assessment, and understand if, if college is the right thing for them to do or is it the right thing to do immediately after school. I admire my friends. I have a very good friend of mine who who's Ivy League educated, and his wife is a teacher at a Phillips Exeter. And, you know, for all the intents and purposes, the younger child is going to Williams next year. The oldest child is working at Starbucks. And right now, that kid is not quite there where he's hungry to go to university. So I think the best advice is to know your kid, understand that life is long, ideally, and that college does not equal success. A type of college does not equal success. I think we, and I'll put myself in that bucket, you know, oftentimes, as a parent at least, assume that's the right course to go. But I'm learning that I have a lot of friends who went to college who are unhappy and for some, you know, however you deem it, unsuccessful. So I want my kids ideally to be happy with the choice that they make, knowing that I support them. And I say that as an educator as well, that there's no one road to success. Yeah, well, what I would add is that, you know, really the conversation should really happen in the household. I think too many times people look at what other people are doing, other people going through this process, not understanding other any number of variables that went into that decision. And they're not thinking about what does my child need? What, what, what are our finances? What is our situation? And I really think that, you know, as families go about this process, they need to focus on, you know, what is readily available to them, what they know, and not looking at other situations that they really might not have as much information as they think they have. Okay, I have um, one question for each of you based on things said in the book. So, Tim, you are working at Emory where your kids, I think, can go for free, right? So how do you make the decision? Yeah, they can go tuition free if admitted. And, you know, ironically, I asked my wife uh, this question this morning in preparation for this. And, and really, it would be up to them. I wouldn't want money to be a driver of this be just because I know my experience that I had at Morehouse. And that, you know, if my daughter or son had the opportunity to go to historically black college or university, knowing what it did for me and my education and the network of friends that I have, and if that is something that they want to do, I would definitely, you know, give them that opportunity. You know, and then also, so, you know, I would think, yes, Emory would be a, a great place for them to go. But as my wife says, they're from Atlanta. I live from Dallas. I went to Atlanta. She's from Chicago. She went to the University of Miami. There's something to be said about going away to college. And so, you know, I would want to give them those options. But obviously, it would be a conversation to be had because, uh, you know, tuition free 
thinking about, you know, the loans and financial aid that, you know, I took out to go to school to set them in a place to where they weren't embedded with that debt is something that could set them up in a different way. So these are all conversations we would have. But, you know, ultimately, I would want them to decide the place that they think they could thrive. But we would both be part of that decision making process. That is really good parenting. You might have to. You might have to edit your book. You have to edit your book next just, time. Just so you know, he's lying, Sue. He, he's lying. He, he's lying. His son's going to Morehouse with a hell of high water. So let this. This sounds good for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as he gets that acceptance to Morehouse, everything is off the table. But my daughter has all the answers in the world. <laughs> okay, Shereem. When I read a book and there's a dedication and I don't get it, I always want to ask the author, "Well, what did you mean?" So I'm asking you. To my wife, Carrie, Howard, 1911, 1999, forever and a dollar sign. Okay. That is a great question. Mm-hmm. And I and I pulled it out to make sure. Carrie's my wife of 23 years. Um, she went to Howard University, which is also the, the foundation of my most glorious fraternity, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, which means a lot to me. So Omega Psi Phi was founded at Howard University, the first African-American fraternity founded at Historically Black College University. So founded in 1911, she went to Howard. That's what that means. So I take pride in my wife went to the uh, <laughs> alpha chapter of, of, of my great frat. And that matters a lot to me because, as Tim says, pledging a black fraternity, having a wife who went to HBCU makes me a little bit more official to him as a black college graduate. Um, There are many black college graduates who didn't go to HBCUs who sometimes get questioned, like, why didn't you go? Mm. Why why did you feel like you didn't want to come be with us? And it's a weird dynamic that sometimes it's said playfully and other times it's not. So Mm. Howard and and my wife and and my, my frat, give me a a little bit more credibility in that respect. We also got married in 1999. We met in May of 99 at Howard, and then we got married in December 99. So, you know, it's not even really knowing each other for six months, but courting for three months, and then deciding to get married has kind of been working, (laughs) kind of been working for for 23 years. (laughs) She's not listening to the podcast, right? We'll make sure we don't send this to her. It's fine. But again, but she, I mean, she she knows how I feel. And she would say the same thing. We tell our kids, don't you dare do that. But we uh, were in good shape. And then, and the money sign, you know, whether Tim likes to hear this or not, I'm a capitalist. Uh, And I I wear that proud. You know, I say I'm an educator, but I'm also an entrepreneur. And when you live in America, in my opinion, which is a capitalist nation, I feel like I need to capitalize. So I like money and I want to make money. And um, that's where that comes from. And my wife likes that too. She's all right with that. She's very okay with me making, us making as much money as possible. I love that. I love that you and Tim are together in this story because it's a very... um two different perspectives from two great guys. So it really does enrich the conversation. I'm not as much as capitalist as he is. And so that's how that's how we go about balancing each other out. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, obviously there's money to be made, but there is a purpose that we want to have. And there's information that we want to share that obviously, you know, he, he, he agrees with. But, you know, I think one of the great things about this book is that we are different. And that, you know, as we were going about the writing process, we butted heads, like we argue weekly. Uh, we've hung up on one another. I had a policy apologize to him, say I wasn't sensitive enough. I mean, it's a dysfunctional marriage, but it works. But it really speaks to the larger uh, goal of the book that we wanted to highlight is the Blacks aren't a monolith. We all have different experiences. We all 
have different things that we're looking for. And so through the book, we wanted people to be able to attach themselves to different parts. You know, maybe an HBCU is what I'm looking for. Maybe it's not what I'm looking for. Oh, yeah, maybe I want to, you know, consider an independent school for my child. Oh, maybe I'm, you know, dedicated to a public school system. And there are all these different dynamics that we just wanted different people to tap into uh, to be a good resource for not only Black families, but also allies, educators, and those who want to support uh, Black students in this process. That's excellent. We're going to wrap up today and ask you both the question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about the college process? I I think the, the biggest myth is that you need to go to a certain type of school to be successful. One of the things that we are highlighting in the book and through as we go around the country and talk is you have to redefine success. That if you want to applaud Barack Obama for being the first black president and all the success that he and his wife have for going to Ivy League institutions, you have to also applaud Oprah Winfrey, who was a billionaire. You have to applaud Vice President Kamala Harris, who is the first non-white uh, vice president And she went to Howard. Oprah Winfrey went to Tennessee State. And so when you look at success, specifically success of black people, it happens both at HBCUs and PWIs. And we want people to be have an open mind of this and not assume that I need to go to an Ivy League institution uh, to be successful. That is not true. Um, So we just want people to think about that, you know, go about this process in a very thoughtful um, thinking about what are the needs of the student. And ultimately, uh, they'll be successful wherever they land. I think the biggest myth is that families think, people think, that there are only 25 schools in the country and that they all apply to the the same usual suspects. And that not just that they're going to give you success, but that literally those are the only schools that exist. I'm a big proponent of building college lists that are appropriate for families that show a breadth of, yes, reach, target, safeties, or foundational, whatever you want to call it. But I really uh, believe in exposing kids to more schools that they may not have know existed. So, you know, Tim has his HBCU versus PWIs. I'll say I'll go even wider than that. That within the HBCU's gamut, there's more than just, you know, Howard, Morehouse, Spellman, FAMU, and Hampton. That there's Prairie View and, you know, Paul Quinn and, and Tuskegee. And on the PWI side, some of my best friends went to Redlands or, or we met a black woman who went to Redlands the other day who, and I have a great friend who went to Swanee University of the South. Highly respected friends went to Oberlin. So I just want families to understand that not, it's not just about success, but let's, let's get the same usual suspects out of your mouth. You know, my son's a freshman at the University of Memphis. Um, not in a million years would I have thought that my son would be in Memphis, Tennessee for college, but he is, and he's playing baseball there, and he's happy. And, and it's opened my eyes to giving him and ultimately my daughters, when they're ready to go through the process, uh, I'm going to look at it through a different lens. So I want the, the myth of there's only 25, 50 schools in the country to be bust. Burst, burst, burst. You know what I mean. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. You can follow Your Teen on Facebook by searching Your Teen for Parents and on Instagram and Twitter at Your Teen Mag. Okay, so we're, we're two moms who share everything. We read an article and we go like, oh my God, my friend, my friend has that same story. We listen to a podcast and we think to ourselves, who can we share this with? It was so good. And we're hoping you're the same. We're hoping you're listening to our podcast, Your Team with Sue and Steph, and you're so excited by what you're hearing that you're sharing it with a friend. We're so grateful in advance for you doing that because that changes our whole story. We get much more exposure 
And we want everyone to hear what our fabulous, talented experts have to say to help us raise our teenagers. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com and listen to all our episodes on evergreenpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus our favorite producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Gray Longfellow. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is Kim Thompson, host of Storytime Anytime, a podcast packed with songs, stories, and a whole lot of learning fun. Each episode will explore a new topic like dinosaurs, sharks, space travel, chemistry, horses, reptiles, and so much more. New episodes are out every other week, so check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. It's really story time and music at its best, exclusively for kids.